Thanks for downloading the Charlie Higson and Friends podcast, which originally broadcast on Scala Radio, a station where we have fun with classical music. It's home to Penny Smith, Simon Mayo, Mark Kermode, and me, Charles Nove. And you can find us on DAB Digital Radio, scalaradio.co.uk, and on the Scala app. Right, over to you, Charlie. Hello, I'm Charlie Higson and welcome to another edition of Charlie Higson and Friends. My friend today is an actress, writer and comedian. I'm delighted to welcome Lucy Porter. Hello, Lucy. I'm delighted to be welcomed. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, I feel a little bit presumptuous describing you as a friend (laughs) in as much as we only met for the first time in 2022. And we met... Was a weird one, wasn't it? It was what a, t- a night it was. I mean, I think we covered a lot. In- yes. Well, for those who weren't there, I'll explain <laughs> what it was. It was a comics festival in the Lake District, and by comics, I don't mean the sort of people who stand on stage and make people laugh for a living, which is partly what you do. Mm-hmm. It is the sort of comics that you draw. Yes. And we were involved in a, a light-hearted quiz about comics. Um, I, I, I'm really into comics and I've written a couple. I, I, I did write a couple of things for Viz in the early days. Are, are, are you, were you there as a comics fan or...? No, just I mean, I'll be honest, it was a gig. I was just there because I love the Lake District and I do, I mean, I love comics and, it, well, especially Viz actually because that's huge in our house because my husband has every edition of Viz ever <laughs> uh, and our children pick up Viz now and they're like oh can we read this funny comic and I'm like just <laughs> maybe a couple of years because they're only 10 and 12 but um, yeah. but yes I but I loved that festival so much It's and it's a yearly event actually if the listeners want to go yeah it's a fantastic festival very well looked after and it's in that slightly sort of surreal setting of being in the Lake District which is not what you associate with kind mm. of Smash pow kapow. Yes, I know, but <laughs> it was um, lovely seeing because there's all these slightly like everybody's got pink hair and they're all sort of very cool and American and people come from all over the world to do this festival and it was really nice seeing the Lake District with all these kind of slightly alternative weird hipsters and they're also talented as well that's the thing is oh. you know comics who stand on stage I kind of get how that's done but comics so, I mean but do, if someone asks you what what you do do you describe yourself as a comic no I say I'm a florist because I hate that yeah, thing. Cut of, off the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, tell us the joke. Oh, who's the most famous person you've met? Or, you know, do you know Michael McIntyre? So, yeah, I, I tend to lie about what I do. But if pressed, then I would probably... Oh, God. Yeah, I'd say stand-up, really, because that's the only mm. thing that's stuck. I've tried different things, but stand-up's the only one that I keep coming back to. And so, Lucy, do you know Michael McIntyre? <laughs> But I can tell you a joke. Uh, <laughs> no, but we what and we do you found call out, a magic dog, a labracadabrador. <laughs> there you go. That's a that's very a nice festive. Joke. Yeah. But no, but so so we got to chatting that you do at these as you do at these events, and we found out we had a huge amount in common. So I, I, I was, you know, in making this series, I thought it would be great to have Lucy on and and talk to you a little bit more. Yes, well, because we explored many things that night. Quizzing was yes. Yeah, so we will come on to that. We, we had many things in common, and in fact, our, our, our careers have sort of coinc- overlapped in certain ways over the over the years, without us actually probably meeting each other tomorrow, before. So, um, I'm very much looking forward to joining the dots today, mm. which I will be 
be doing while you're talking. Uh, I've got one of those little puzzle books. Um, but as this is a music programme, let's start with um, a piece of music. And what I always ask my guest stroke friend is, what was the first piece of music you heard where you were kind of aware that there was music other than pop music? Yeah, because I had, my older sister is 10 years older than me, and so she, from a very young age, was feeding me, like, the Boomtown Rats and uh, sort of new romantic stuff. So that's what I thought music was. But my dad was a huge classical music fan, and I suppose the first thing I remember is... um, your tiny hand is frozen, let me warm it into life, was something that he used to say to me. And then he'd sing this weird song and I kind of didn't really understand what was going on. And then eventually he played me the piece of music and I was like, oh my goodness, this is, you know, do I like this? I'm not sure, but it's not like anything else I've ever heard. Um, so, I, I, I mean, that was my Did dad's... he listen to a lot of uh, classical music? He did. So my dad was born in Belfast in the 30s and um, he was in a Catholic family, but his dad was an RUC officer, which was sort of mm. very rare even then. Right. Um, and so he had this incredibly... Uh, quite traumatic upbringing actually so Mm. they moved around a lot but he spent a lot of time at this school run by the Christian brothers Christian in name only really because they beat the absolute living daylights out of all the kids but my dad he had discovered his love of classical music because one of the uh, priests who taught him had taken a load of boys from the school to a classical concert in Belfast. And my dad, who they had no music in their home really whatsoever, um, and he fell completely in love with it. And it was a sort of transformative thing really that, you know, this kind of working class lad from Belfast suddenly had this... This sort of taste in music that yeah, I mean, nobody it, else shared. You know, it seemed to be to be something that was a lot more prevalent, uh, uh, sort of in the first half of the twentieth century. That idea of sort of it it, it not feeling weird or, or or shameful for a working class person to go and see classical music, and there was, you know, there were town halls and l- local music halls and concert halls, and they would put on concerts, and it and it was just something that people did. Yeah, and it wasn't that sort of. There's that weird, snobbery, you know, kind of Daily Mail style sort of, mm. oh, it's an elitist pursuit. Yes. And, yeah, I, my dad, I certainly never felt like, oh, this isn't for the likes of me. I think in a in a way that maybe I sort of felt a little bit sort of weird about... Because when I got to university, it sort of liking classical music was not particularly cool. And the, the kind of people who like classical music were either sort of actual posh people or people who are sort of affecting to be posh and would wear smoking jackets and, and smoke pipes. And, yes, exactly, cosplaying yeah. as toffs, really. And so I felt a little bit kind of embarrassed about it. But I think, yeah, my dad certainly never did. And he, um, and he absolutely loved singing it could not sing to save his life but he loved to sing and i have inherited that as well i love a karaoke i love to just express myself and uh, so he absolutely inculcated a love of classical music in me from a very early age particularly opera was his thing mm. so so the catchphrase your tiny hand is frozen came first and then you found out where it came from yes. which was the puccini opera uh, la boheme yes now i i 
came to that music the other way round, which was hearing the music first and only going to see the opera much later and finding out what they're actually singing about. And I was really surprised in La Boheme that it's, that it's about a bunch of students living in a grotty flat and they're all talking about not having enough money to pay for the gas meter type of thing. And, and you know, the, the songs, which are these beautiful arias, are often about quite mundane things. Yes. Because, I mean, I quite like... We used to go and see a lot of filmed opera at the uh, the Fairfield Halls in Croydon. Mm. And I, you know, as a kid, I couldn't really relate to some of the more sort of melodramatic people mm. dying and, you know, grand passion and romance. But, I, yes, I did... I quite like La Boheme. I like La Boheme and I... I I think kind of Italian opera really is more my thing. Yeah, you know, if, if certainly if anyone asks me what opera should I go and see, I said, you know, start with start with some Verdi or Puccini or something like that. I remember actually in the in the eighties when I was working as a painter and decorator, uh, and a, with a group of friends, we were sort of doing up places, and I was also starting to work with Harry Enfield at the time. We were writing loads of money. And we, after work one day, we all went in our work clothes to the piazza at Covent Garden because they were live, live streaming, I suppose you would call it these days, La Boheme from the Royal Opera House with um, Domingo singing. Uh, and it was great to stand there in the piazza. But we, we then worked that up into a loads of money sketch, which was about him and his mates going to the opera singing Domingo, Domingo, Domingo. <laughs> because, you know, we were, we, were, we were posh builders going to the opera. Yeah. Well, Pavarotti <laughs> was such a fixture. Again, as a kid, it, it, also, yeah, there was more kind of awareness of classical music on telly and stuff. In the, I, I remember thinking, oh, Pavarotti is that sort of funny fat man because there were so many sketches and, you know... Yeah, well, was, I mean, certainly I suppose it was the telly in 90 that really yes, made, made those guys famous. But, um, yeah, and uh, an opera was... Every, and, you know, what that proved is that those... That music and those arias are incredibly accessible and people can get into them. So the idea that you, you have to get a degree in cleverness in order yeah. to listen to this music is, is nonsense. So, so you listen to a lot of music courtesy of your father, with your father? Yeah, because he was into two things, uh, classical music and really extraordinarily easy listening, James Last mm. and... Uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass was the soundtrack to my Any childhood. Any Mantovani? Yeah, Mantovani. Richard Claderman, who was sort of yeah. that kind of bridge between classical... Because there was also stuff like... Do you remember Classical Gas? Yes. And the the London Philharmonic had a couple of pop hits, didn't they, as well? Yeah, well, you know... that Hooked that, on that, classics yeah. and that. Well, that sort of still, that still goes on, where they, they do, the Royal Philharmonic do a lot of sort of things at the Albert Hall where they'll do orchestral versions of Queen songs and things like that. CBeebies great actually because they always do little proms for kids and slip some stuff in. Yeah, no, there's some great, great stuff on at the proms. So the next question I always ask is what is your favourite piece of classical music? Now, classical music is, is a sort of broad 
church, particularly mm. here on Scala. So it's sort of anything that is orchestral or film music or whatever. <laughs> and you've gone for and you and you did question it. You said, "Is this a bit naff?" <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's now. I think it's gorgeous, obviously, and I could listen to it from here till the end of time. But it felt to me like I'm coming on Scala Radio, I should be picking something fancy and I wasn't sure if this was fancy enough not fancy enough for Scala so no. I apologise to your listeners no, it's if this Scala is not radio. fancy it's not enough. Radio 3 <laughs> certainly wouldn't be fancy enough for Radio 3 no uh, uh, well just to just so the audience know what we're talking about it is the theme from uh, Merry Christmas Mr Lawrence by Ryuchi Sakamoto <laughs> was it an 80s film? I think it probably yes. was, yeah. And are you a big fan of the film as well? I've um, never seen the film. Right, OK, so this is my guest, Lucy Porter, who has chosen a piece of music from a film that she's never seen <laughs> as her favourite piece of music. I do that a lot. There's a lot of film music I listen to that, that, that are not from, from films I've never seen. Yeah. Um, I, mean, the, I have seen Merry Christmas, Mr Lawrence. I think I went to see it when it came out. And like all David Bowie films, apart from The Man Who Fell to Earth... It's a bit rubbish. Yeah. David Bowie being in a film is kind of a sign like, mm, yeah, <laughs> maybe I won't go and see that one. What was the one, though? Is it The Dark Crystal or there's one of those sort of fantasy uh, ones? Uh, Labyrinth, Labyrinth, I think. that's it's it. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. you know, he's really cheesy in it. Yeah. Well, I didn't like David Bowie because, I, you know, I was exposed to him as an actor and then sort of that weird period where it was like a little drummer boy and there was just sort of... It's something, a whiff of novelty about him. And I didn't know the amazing stuff that he had done and was yet to do. So, yeah, I think I thought he was a bit, well, naff. Well, he did go a bit adrift in the 80s. He sort of lost his mojo of having been absolutely finger on the pulse, mm. leading the pack. I tell you what it was. It was dancing in the streets with Mick Jagger. That was the thing yeah. that made me because being young and awful, I was like, "Oh, look at those two old men dancing around in big shirts, <laughs> aren't they?" And you know, they're probably about the age that I am. No, they're probably younger than I yes, am now. Yes, I know that's the scary thing. But yeah, I thought, God, what what are they doing? Still cavorting like I that know, at and their who, age? And who would have thought that that, that Mick Jagger would? Would be at it still 30, 40 years later. I know, I'm much too old to be his latest wife. You know? I mean, <laughs> I've, that ship has sailed for me, sadly. But but then I did rediscover Bowie and I was like, he's amazing. Yeah. And also, Ruchi Sakamoto, I then kind of looked into a little bit of his back catalogue and an amazing kind of range of talents and he basically reinvented electronic dance music or invented electronic yes. dance music largely and then he's got this lovely there's like a sort of easy listening-y type album I think it's called Smoochy or something <laughs> yeah, it's really my I dad must, would have loved that I as must well. check it out it sounds great yeah it is <laughs> are there any other film soundtracks you listen to with films that you either hate or have never seen <laughs> um, well, mostly the soundtracks that I like are for films that I do mm. love. Um, the piano. Have you seen the piano? Yes, I have seen the piano. No, I didn't love that film piano. actually. You didn't. I did. I like the soundtrack more than I like the movie. You're actually. supposed to love it. You're you're a woman. <laughs> is it a woman's? <laughs> is it is it like Bridges of Madison County? Only women so. are allowed to watch. I it. think so. But I do love the music because I'm a huge fan of Michael Nyman. Yes. But no, I, I, one day I will sit down and watch the film. Well, Peter Greenaway films always had those kind of amazing... Was it Michael Nyman or Philip Glass? No, that they? was Michael Nyman, yes. Yeah, and, but I never really got on with, uh, you know, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. I was like, oh, it's oh, a long time. I liked that one. Mm, no, not for me. 
great music. It's probably for men. That's probably what it is. It's one of those men's films that I've heard so much about. <laughs> Charlie Higson and Friends on Scala Radio. You're listening to me, Charlie Higson, wibbling on here on Scala Radio <laughs> uh, with my lovely guest and friend, Lucy Porter. <laughs> so, Lucy, people use music in a lot of different ways. And particularly these days, I think they use it to relax, to, mm. to de-stress. And that's often classical music is recommended for that. There's endless playlists on Spotify of relaxing piano music. Um, there is a Claire de Lune on, on repeat, basically. Yes. Um, yeah, well, I do use music to relax my fevered brain and also to calm the children down that's you know how they play classical music at tube stations in particularly challenging areas yes, of and London. at shopping malls when they're trying to drive all the teenagers out <laughs> yes it's like high-pitched noises it's something that they think will repel teenagers but um, my kids actually really like it and I have always my whole life had terrible trouble sleeping and terrible trouble switching off and mm. um, I like so many of my comedy colleagues have been diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood oh really yeah and it's a big thing that actually you know your brain is kind of so noisy that you need something but that probably really helps for a, for a stand-up to be able to stand there and just keep thinking fast and coming out with stuff. Yeah, and also, yeah, you do have about 15 different thoughts, so you can mm. just pick the one that appeals to you. And see, now I look back and I think my dad, clearly, you know, because it's a genetic thing apparently, but he clearly had ADHD mm. and slightly terrifyingly because he was a pharmacist. And, you know, <laughs> it's a job where you'd think attention to detail is fairly That's, necessary. That sounds like a, a fast show sketch or a, or a, a <laughs> legal gentleman, the ADHD pharmacist. <laughs> Just slinging out any old pills. <laughs> Just take it, get out of the This way. one's good. Or you could try this one. <laughs> well, in fact, you know what? He, because um, he once he recounted to me this incredible story about he um, inhalers used to have they used to have these basically sort of amphetamine inhalers that they'd give people for yes. colds and things and he'd left one on a heater it was benzedrine i think that's it? what yes. it is yes and he'd left it on a heater and so it all sort of kind of gassed up and he took a hit on this and he went absolutely <laughs> nuts for about three days he was like i couldn't sleep but he said but my mind felt really calm so in a way he was well. a pioneer of ADHD medication right. without knowing it. Um, but yeah, so he used to always listen to music as he was drifting off to sleep and I do the same now. So that would be, for me, a, sort of a nice piano piece or something. Right. I particularly, Lucy, I particularly like um, in the summer to be out. If I'm on holiday, you can take your playlist with you on your phone and you can listen by the side of a pool with a cocktail. Ooh, I don't Vivaldi from... would go very nicely with a glass of something chilled by yes. a pool, wouldn't it? A nice exactly. sort of uh, some, a frascati. <laughs> I don't think I've had a frascati for years. Do they, is that still a thing? I'm sure it is. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll try and get you one in for the <laughs> second half of the show. I've not been on holiday for years, but yeah, if you well, could get what me... What do you mean you've not been on holiday for years? Well, I just, uh, you know, oh, COVID and all COVID of that stuff, and, yeah, yeah, so I've not had the time. But, yeah, that's my dream is to go to Italy. And it's and... not quite the same when you've got younger children. No, exactly. I mm. want to get to an age where they can either sort of come and enjoy it or not come. <laughs> you want to get to the age where they will mix the cocktails and bring them to you. Yes, that's and then drive you back to wherever <laughs> you're going. That's that's the idea. But, yeah, I think they'd love, I think they'd love to go to Italy. I think it'd be a nice little jaunt. So, Lucy, let's just talk a little bit about your... Career, um, because you told me when we um, when we met 
that you started out at Granada TV as... Were you, a, you weren't a receptionist, were you? you were uh, well, I was a kind of a runner, researcher, Research, yeah. sort of, yeah, general woman of all all trades. Um, uh, yes, and so this is where our lives and careers have kind of almost intersected because I yes. was employed by the brilliant, wonderful, amazing Carolina Hearn. Yeah, who had started as a, as a receptionist at Granada. Granada being this, the amazing... Manchester-based powerhouse for making so many fantastic programmes for ITV and they sort of got absorbed into what became the conglomerate ITV. Yes. But back then was a fantastic... It must have been an amazing place to work. Oh, it was TV in Manchester in the 1990s was just so much fun because you had the BBC. So Caroline had actually started at the BBC on ah, Oxford right, Road. Okay. Um, and that was where they'd done, like, you know, loads of pop programmes from. And it was that had all that history. And then Granada was this big, huge building uh sort of this tower that loomed over the whole of Manchester with this penthouse suite that was looked like Joan Collins should be mm. making a movie in it constantly. And sadly, like everywhere else in Manchester, has been turned into a hotel now, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because at one point in its heyday, it had the Granada Studios tour, mm. which was a theme park based around the Granada programming. So, you know, you could go into the Rover's Return and then there was Shane Ritchie. Shane Ritchie did some programme about weddings and there was some Shane Ritchie Love Me Do experience where you went on a love boat and stuff. So anyway, it was it was brilliant. Such a great place to work. And so when you say you worked for Caroline, what, what was... She- she making at the time? So she, when she did the Mrs Merton show, yeah. um, I worked on the pilot of that. So she was amazingly kind and nurturing. And I think having kind of been a secretary herself and then mm. kind of worked her way up, so she mentored me really. Um, and so she let me come and book guests for the Mrs Merton show, So, <laughs> which was an amazing job. And sometimes it was brilliant, like lovely Debbie McGee, who will forever be linked right. with the... So you did you book... Paul and Debbie for that show. Then. Yeah, well, in fact, because Debbie did it. Oh, no, it. it was just Debbie, wasn't it? No, but then she did it, and then Paul insisted. <laughs> he phoned up and said, I want to come on the show, which no one ever did, because it was so hard to get people, because it was in Manchester, and, of course, most yes. celebrities live in London or surrounding areas. And so it was like, oh, will you come up to Manchester and do this chat show? And it's a bit kind of weird, because it's a... It's a woman who is, she's young, but she's pretending to be old and mm. loads of people were scared of it. The only people who would come on, actually, were people who either knew they had a good sense of humour, like Debbie McGee, or people who hadn't watched the tape that we'd sent them, like Jimmy Hill, who <laughs> turned up <laughs> and was absolutely baffled by the whole thing from start to finish. And Chris Eubank, which was one of the most terrifying oh, nights yeah. of my life because I'd booked Chris Eubank and I was looking after him and he was not a happy bunny at all. And oh. I honestly thought he was going to punch me. I was like, I will go down... <laughs> <laughs> like a sack of potatoes if he even breathes on me let alone punches me but yeah so there were some there were some exciting uh, nights some yeah and no, I mean the guests on those things are, I think the Jimmy Hill type ones are, are always the best though it's when they're kind of in on the joke that it doesn't quite yeah because I remember I, I would have been a similar time working with um, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer in the early days of shooting stars and again on that, you know, the ghost, the guests like Larry Hagman, who would, you know, they'd come over from America and their publicist, because publicists are always desperate to say, look, I've got you on six different shows. <laughs> so one of them's called Shooting Stars. It's, it's easy. You just turn up and have fun. 
And yeah, they're up, utterly bewildered. <laughs> uh, always, always the most fun. He was always, I always thought he looked like a good laugh though, Larry Hagman. Yeah, I no, he was, he, he had a good Because in fact, on the Mrs. Merton show in Las Vegas, we had Bobby Ewing, Patrick Duffy, <laughs> and he was brilliant. He was such a lovely man. And I kind of, I have this lovely image of JR and Bobby on the set of Dallas just having a brilliant time and being best mates yeah. and being amazing. Well, it was, you know, it was it was great for Caroline because she would, she would get on people that she liked. Yeah, and the whole audience was her friends and family. Yeah. And it was... Because at Granada at that time, people were so mean to the audiences. Like, the, mm. it, it was a really horrible culture in television where it was like, oh, God, the studio audience, they're such a pain and we have to give them water and sit them down, you know, how inconvenient. And she, kind of being a lovely person, went, you know what, no, that's all wrong. What I want is for the audience to be part of the show. And, I mean, that's another of the things that made it the success it was. So having worked with Caroline Ahern on Mrs. Merton, you sort of moved up in the world there? Well, the I was so bad at being a TV researcher because mm. I'm terrible at admin. And so Caroline encouraged me into the world of stand-up. And That's I, quite a leap from researcher to stand-up. Yeah, it is because I was never like I wasn't uh, an outgoing person. I'd never done any drama or anything like that, and I was terrified. I started doing stand-up really because I wanted to write, and that seemed like the easiest way to sort of do some writing and get it noticed. Yeah. So I didn't really have ambitions to be. Um, Did you know any other stand-ups at the time? Yeah, there was an amazing comedy scene in Manchester. So, right. like, Caroline and John Thompson, Steve Coogan and Henry Normal yeah, were the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the older generation. But then coming through, there were people like Chris Addison, Dave Gorman, yeah. Peter Kay sort of burst onto the Gosh. scene while I was there, Johnny Vegas, John Bishop. Not a lot of women in that list. No, there were very few of us, which, I mean, in some ways was an advantage because it meant that you would get booked sort mm. of And then you had your quickly. pick of any... Any stand-up? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I mean, let's not go into that. But, uh, yeah, there was... A, it was a really a very incestuous scene in so many ways. Um, but, yeah, But you must gone. like um, comics because you, you married one. Yes, I did. I did. Eventually, I found the funniest one and thought, I'll marry that one. So, uh, yeah, Justin Edwards, who is... I mean, he's more of a character comedian than a stand-up. Yes. Comedian. Well, well, we'll come back to that in a minute, but I quite impressed myself there that I've engineered a link into this next piece of music. <laughs> well done, which seamless. Is, yes, which is the piece of music that you had played at your wedding. Yes. We played live? By, uh, no, a recording, a recording as I walked down the aisle. So, you know, you always think, what well, I, I hated organising the wedding, hated it, never mm. really wanted to get married, but we sort of just thought, oh, well, we should. And I kind of, my mum and dad were very keen for... So you, you walked down the aisle with your father? Yes, and he'd been really ill. My dad, bless him, had terrible health in the last few years of his life. And so he'd been, I mean, he'd had the last rites about three mm. times and then he sort of rallied. And then in, in one of these windows, I got married. The wonderful Justin Edwards. The very tall Justin Edwards. It was yes, like a piece what, of like physical twice comedy. Your height? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's six foot five, and I'm four eleven. So it looked <laughs> the whole thing was ridiculous. It looked like a circus. But you weren't uh, able to wear like stilts under your wedding dress. <laughs> I did or have, have to stand on a box. Up. You did have to stand photo, on a box. Which, in hindsight, I'm like that was ridiculous. So yeah, we've got our wedding photos are brilliant. They, the photographer was amazing, but he's a war photographer primarily, <laughs> which is kind of appropriate for our relationship. And uh, so they're like they all look slightly harrowing 
in different ways and especially the ones of our families together because his family are all massive and then we're all these sort of tiny little misshapen Celts. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it does look insane. But uh, but yeah, but it was a lovely day and it was and it was really nice that my dad got to be there. Yeah, and, and how has it been being married to someone in the same industry? Um, well, we're not in direct competition for parts because obviously he well, plays... Well, these days with gender-fluid casting... <laughs> yes, but they, if they've got a costume that fits him, you know, <laughs> that's how they do it, isn't it? They go, right, we've got this costume, who's going to fit it? I, I presume wardrobe dictate the casting process. But he does very glamorous things, so he goes off and does movies and he, during COVID, he went off to film Death in Paradise and oh, I have never hated God. a human being more. So he just deserted the yeah. whole thing. I was at home homeschooling the two children with very little success because... Well, he had to keep the money coming in. Well, he did. That's what us men do. Absolutely. He was (laughs) breadwinning for us and sending me pictures of him on a beach with a cocktail. And, uh, For those of you who can't picture Justin Edwards, you should look, look him up because he is a fabulous character actor. Um, and I love character actors. You know, I grew up in the era of watching all those black and white films on TV with the likes of John Le Mesere and yeah. Sid James and Alistair Sim. And yeah. Well, in fact, Justin them. and his friend Miles Jupp are currently in a stage adaptation of The Lavender Hill Mob. Oh, excellent. So well, he's basically know, exactly. being Stanley Holloway. He's channeling oh. all those great characters. Yes. And, you know, he, he, he can, he's in so many things when you look into it, isn't he, in Justin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the way to be, just always be working and, you know, yeah. never be hot, always be warm, as somebody <laughs> once said. And I've taken that... To, I've, I've always been tepid and I intend to continue to be so. <laughs> so my friend Lucy Porter played a piece of music that had emotional significance for her and tied her in back into memories of her father. I got into classical music when I was a, a, a boy at the same time as my father, who hadn't been into it, but he started getting into it. And we, he used to drive me into school in the mornings on his way to commute up to London. We, were, we lived down in Sevenoaks. And we would always listen to Radio 3 on the way in. And it was a sort of Radio 3 equivalent of the sort of drive time stuff. So it was a lot of um, a lot of big banging tunes. <laughs> the monsters of classical. Yes. And, and I do very much remember a proper earworm, which is uh, Handel's Arrival of the Queen of Sheba, Let's Rock. <laughs> oh, that is a banger. <laughs> Charlie Higson and Friends on Scala Radio. The Charlie Higson and Friends podcasts were originally broadcast on Scala Radio, a radio station that celebrates classical music in all its shapes and sizes. Why not join me, Charles Nove, for breakfast weekday mornings between 7 and 10? It would be wonderful to have you. Scala Radio broadcasts across the UK on DAB Digital Radio, on your smart speaker, the Scala Radio app, and online at scalaradio.co.uk. 